Hi, I'm Rochelle Young. And I'm Sam Tracy. And you're listening to This Week in Drugs, the leading podcast on all things drugs and drug policy. This Week in Drugs is a weekly podcast meant to educate the public and decision makers about drugs in order to eliminate harmful misconceptions and improve public policy. And hopefully have some fun in the process. We neither condemn nor condone drug use. Rather, we envision a world in which our attitudes and laws surrounding drugs are grounded in science, compassion, health, and human rights. We'll be starting off today's episode with the biggest drug news stories from the last week and a forecast for some events that are coming up. And this segment will now be a bit longer than previously due to some tweaks we've made to our format. Then, after a shout out to one of our favorite podcasts, we'll be given an introduction to cocaine in the first installment of our new Drug of the Month. Then, next up is our roundtable discussion of the opiate overdose crisis and how we can reduce these drugs' harms, with special guest Lisa Reville, who is the executive director of the Harm Reduction Action Center in Denver, Colorado. And as always, we'll wrap it up with our calls to action, because while learning about drugs and drug policy is great, it's really nothing if we're not using that knowledge to make positive change for our communities. So thank you so much for joining us for Episode 5 of This Week in Drugs, and we hope you enjoy the show. And now it's time for the weekly news and forecast, where Sam and I will discuss a few big drug-related stories from this week, and then let you know about a couple of things to look forward to next week. Sam, do you want to start things off with our first story? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, this first story for this week is coming in from my home state of Boston Mayor Marty Walsh announced that he wants to ban smokeless tobacco in all of the city's sports venues. And so he plans to file an ordinance to be voted on later by the city council, but not much opposition is expected. And this ban would apply to both professional and amateur stadiums. And supporters say that they're pushing it in order to prevent baseball players from chewing tobacco and making it look cool to impressionable young fans. Uh, And this angle is actually being pushed hardest by former Red Sox pitcher Kurt Schilling, uh, who was diagnosed with mouth cancer last year after a long history of chewing tobacco and has been outspoken on tobacco prevention ever since. So this is, I mean, this is an interesting next step in tobacco policy because the argument about banning uh, cigarette smoking in certain venues has always been based on uh, secondhand smoke and how that can directly affect the health of people around you. Um, what do you what do you think about this ban, Sam? I can't imagine you're a fan of it. <laughs> yeah, not really. I mean, I'm not a fan of chewing tobacco. I think it's kind of gross and I, I, I have never tried it myself, but and it's definitely not healthy. But I, I don't really think that a ban is necessarily the best way to fight this. Uh, I mean, if we want to Oh, I meant our... that you weren't a fan of the ban. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Um, <laughs> But yeah, I just don't think that it is really the best way rather than just, you know, encouraging players not to chew tobacco anymore or having some sort of voluntary rule by the Red Sox or the or Major League Baseball. And because all of the media focus so far has been on the impact of essentially this is trying to stop players from chewing tobacco. But it seems like it's also going to be applying to fans, too, which just doesn't really seem that fair to me because, I mean, at all these sports stadiums, they're selling a ridiculous amount of alcohol. And now we're going to be banning these tobacco products instead with and leaving the alcohol alone. Uh, so when, if we're talking about, you know, trying not to have kids uh, see people using drugs and get influenced to do it. I mean, if you're actually care about that rather than just think tobacco is gross. Uh, then you would probably be pushing for a ban on alcohol in these stadiums too. Definitely. And I think the the angle about uh, being a bad influence on children is especially 
interesting in a professional athlete context you know given that uh nfl players playing football leads to so many brain concussions and obviously nfl players are idolized by so many people um so is them doing their job then a bad influence on children's health i don't know (laughs) yeah exactly there's all these injuries from sports whether it's you know torn rotator cuffs and stuff is it harm reduction if we just don't have kids look up to sports stars anymore (laughs) who knows (laughs) but yeah what's uh your first story for this week yeah, this is this is one that um, is really personal to me and Sam because of our professional involvement. Um, so we have been telling you guys for the past few weeks that the New York medical marijuana licenses uh, would be announced soon, soon, soon. We kept telling you next week or the week after. And finally, it's actually happened. This is really exciting news for my law firm, Vicente Cedarberg, because our clients were one of the winners. Awesome. Yeah, the five winners were Pharmacan, Empire State Health Solutions, Columbia Care New York, uh, Etain, and Bloomfield Industries. Um, so because of client attorney privilege, I can't say who our clients were, but this was an overall incredibly competitive process with tons of strong applicants and several of the other applications that fell short of the top five spots were less than were less than a point away. Yeah, and uh, how about you, Sam? Yeah, I mean, looking at these results, unfortunately, uh, here at Forefront Advisors, our client, which was Butler Evergreen, uh, didn't make the cut. Uh, they did a really good job, but as you said, it was just so incredibly competitive. I mean, there was over over 40 applicants going for these five licenses, each of which uh, I'm sure there was a lot of political maneuvering behind the scenes, and a lot of it had to do with factors that were outside of people's control. Uh, so we were a little bit disappointed to see the results, but it is nice to see that the uh, that the system is actually getting underway now. And I just really hope that all of the, uh, the license winners actually get the ball rolling as quickly as possible so that we can start having... Uh, actual access available to patients in the state because it's been a it's been a really long time until uh, uh for patients to be waiting for access to their medicine yeah so it sounds like uh the next steps will be coming really soon and that that access will arrive sooner than many expected um one in, one of the winning companies bloomfield industries actually said already that it has an operating plan in place and can begin growing medicine as soon as next week Many of the other groups uh, that won also already have experience in the cannabis industry from other states, such as Pharmacan, um, which has several dispensaries in Illinois, Empire State, which I believe is affiliated with one of the two Minnesota growers, and Columbia Care, which is affiliated with uh, Patriot Care right there in Massachusetts with you, Sam. So it sounds like there's um, a lot of experience on, on, on behalf of uh, the winning the winning companies and that medicine will be coming pretty soon. Obviously, many advocates still think that 20 dispensaries for the entire state is not going to be enough uh, to meet patient demand, which I agree with, but this is still a step forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I really hope that the program does eventually get expanded, but I guess the, the first priority right now is just implementation. So looking forward to uh, seeing some dispensaries finally open in New York. So moving on to our next story, Sam, what do you have for us? All right. So our next story for this week is that uh, last week, a drone flew over an Ohio prison yard and dropped a package of drugs onto the recreation area where where there was uh, tons of inmates uh, hanging out outside. And so according to the authorities there, it contained seven grams of heroin, 57 grams of marijuana and 140 grams of tobacco. 
And so once this package dropped into the yard, inmates began fighting over it, and a bunch of prison guards had to break up the fight, pepper spraying everybody, and then they searched uh, everyone who was there. And so the, to me, actually, the craziest part of this, uh, this whole thing is that this is not the first time a drone has dropped contraband into a prison yard, which I had never heard of before. What? I've yeah, never so heard I of that guess this is starting either. to be a little bit more of a problem since drones are getting so cheap and available. And, uh, and so in Ohio, the Department of Rehabilitation and Correction says they're actually trying to improve their system for, uh, for detecting drones. And uh, this is just a crazy thing because it shows that, you know, there's just one more method uh, for being able to sneak drugs into prison. Uh, Traditionally, it's usually gone through corrupt guards who either smuggle it in directly to the prisoners or sometimes they'll be paid off in order to look the other way when someone, when a visitor smuggles it in. But this is an interesting way to essentially just do it directly. Uh, This is actually a really interesting twist, too, because I can't imagine, I mean, when uh, in the more traditional methods of sneaking drugs in uh you know exactly who it's being delivered to and if you're the recipient you can be assured that you're going to receive the package um but in this case as as we saw based on the fight that broke out it's not really a reliable delivery method and i would think that whoever is you know involved in this scheme would be worried that their drugs are going to someone else or that it's going to cause a huge ruckus and no one is going to get them I don't know. I don't know about the yeah, this, which was the yeah case the drone this time. delivery service mm-hmm. thing. Might have to rethink their business yeah, model. It's, it, <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, it does seem like a pretty inefficient way to do things. Uh, I mean, you're cutting out the middleman, but you're making it pretty unknown as to who it's actually getting to. Although, since this isn't the first time it's been caught, I wonder if there have been other ones in the past in which it actually has gone off without a hitch and just nobody noticed. Uh, but you know, that's really impossible to tell. And it just really is interesting because right now there's also starting to be apparently there's some group that's trying to have a drone delivery service for marijuana in California, uh, which, you know, drones aren't approved even for deliveries of, of federally legal things. So there's no way this is, you know, actually legal. But since everything is a gray market over there anyway, uh, who knows if that'll actually end up working out. Um, so moving on to our final story of the week. Um, The U.S. Sentencing Commission released last week a report on the impact of the 2010 Fair Sentencing Act. So in 2010, Congress passed the Fair Sentencing Act, which reduced the sentencing disparity between offenses for crack cocaine and powder cocaine from a ratio of 100 100 to 1 to now 18 to 1. So there is still a disparity between sentencing for uh, crack versus powder. But the previous 100 to 1 ratio means that people faced much longer sentences for offenses involving crack cocaine um, than they did for offenses involving the same amount of powder cocaine, two forms of the same drug. This is especially egregious um, in light of the racial disparities in the war on drugs because African-Americans were more likely to be uh, targeted for uh, crack cocaine use. And so the U.S. Sentencing Commission's report found that the Fair Sentencing Act did successfully reduce the disparity between crack and powder cocaine sentences. It also substantially reduced the federal prison population, which is a bit, which has been of concern, and resulted in fewer federal prosecutions for crack cocaine. And a bonus <laughs> is that all of this occurred while crack cocaine use, use continued to decline. Fantastic. I mean, and this is really good to hear, and I, I think not too surprising just because the U.S. Sentencing Commission has actually, I think, been pretty progressive in terms of calling for reforms in the past. 
Uh, but this, I mean, is especially really relevant just because of all of the work that Obama's been doing on, on the, the granting clemency side of things, because what he's been doing lately is essentially commuting the sentences of the people who, if they were sentenced today, uh, would have already been out of prison, or if they were sentenced under today's laws, uh, would already be out of prison. And so this is giving him a good excuse and a lot of political cover to commute the sentences and, and actually get people out of prison who have been there for, for a long time, ever since the 80s or 90s, when these uh, when these laws were being the, the most vigorously enforced. Yeah, and so the next steps actually are for the, the commission to separately study the group of crack cocaine offenders who were released early as a result of the Fair Sentencing Act amendments to determine whether their recidivism rates were the same or how they compare. All right, great. And so, I mean, uh, th- this is a really good news in terms of uh, showing that things are working, and I hope it nudges things a little bit in the direction so that we can finally, you know, get a one-to-one ratio and have things actually make sense. All right, and then that brings us to our weekly forecast where we talk about a, a few things that are coming up. So uh, for me, this evening, uh, my new hometown of Somerville, Massachusetts, will actually be holding a public hearing on some new zoning laws. They're overhauling zoning for the entire city, but this actually includes provisions on where, if anywhere, medical marijuana dispensaries can locate in the city. And so I know very few, if any of our listeners live in Somerville with me, but I'm including this in the forecast just because it's really important to realize that that so many important decisions about the marijuana industry are made on the local level. And so if you live in a state that is just newly allowing medical marijuana, you should really reach out to your local government and get involved so that you can let your representatives know that they should embrace dispensaries and treat them just like they would pharmacies or any other sort of medical establishment, rather than trying to relegate them into the shadows like you would with a, you know, a sex toy shop or even zoning them out of existence so they're not allowed at all. And all politics really is local, and that goes double or triple for marijuana politics. So I hope that people reach out. Um, and I, I take slight issue with sex shops being relegated into the shadows as well, but I suppose that's a topic for another podcast. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. <laughs> uh, so um, my forecast is for, uh, again, it's pretty hyper local, but this is for any listeners in the Denver area or if you have friends in Denver, you should let them know. The team behind legalization in Colorado um, is leading another marijuana initiative, this time to allow for the limited public use of marijuana. So this definitely doesn't mean public use as in on the sidewalks and in parks, Um, but I will explain a little bit more about the initiative in a second. What you should know is that this Sunday is the deadline to turn in petition signatures. So if you're in favor of this, you need to go out right away um, and find one of the signature gatherers and add your signature to the petitions. What the initiative does is give the option to adult establishments such as um, bars or concert venues um, to allow adults to use marijuana inside their business. Um, This brings us closer to equality with uh, alcohol. Um, It doesn't require any business to allow marijuana consumption, but instead allows um, existing businesses with liquor licenses to opt in or allows any venue that would allow that wants to allow marijuana consumption to obtain a separate license uh, similar to a liquor license. And any business that does opt in would still have to comply with the Indoor Clean Air Act, meaning that marijuana smokers would still have to go outside or to other areas where uh, cigarette cigarette smokers are currently allowed, uh, such as an enclosed patio area. Um, And these establishments would still not be allowed to sell marijuana for on-site consumption. 
So even if you don't live in the Denver area, you should still care about this initiative because Colorado and Denver in particular are becoming the model for what the legal marijuana world is going to look like when it happens nationwide. So as a marijuana consumer um, or a friend of a marijuana consumer, etc., um, it <laughs> you probably don't want um, your friends to be stuck outside the bar while you can go have a drink. Or as a marijuana consumer, you probably don't want to have to keep hiding in your mom's basement like we did during the Prohibition era. Yeah, I mean, in Colorado, it was the campaign to regulate marijuana like alcohol, and people voted for that. So it just seems crazy that uh, that there still are a lot of differences. So I hope that this uh, does end up passing. That's great. All right, everybody. So that has been our weekly news and forecast. Uh, and as always, since we, we do follow a lot of news about the drug war, but so much is happening that it's really hard to keep track of it all. So if you, our listeners, do see a good news story or know about something that's coming up that you'd like us to feature on the show, just send it to us on social media. We're on Facebook and Twitter, or you can email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com, and we may include it in the next episode. from our typical shout out to our favorite nonprofits, this week we'd like to put on a special spotlight for Marijuana Today, a really great podcast focusing in on marijuana business and politics. This podcast is actually what inspired us to get started with podcasting ourselves, and is produced by many of our friends and colleagues from the marijuana reform movement and the legal marijuana industry. And as an added bonus, Rochelle and I were actually guests on the most recent episode, which came out this past Friday. So if you give it a listen, you can hear us talk for two whole hours this week. So if you want another drug policy podcast in your life and want to dive even deeper into the marijuana world than we're able to do here, you should check out Marijuana Today, which you can find on iTunes or at mjtodaypodcast.com. And now, this is the part of the episode where we normally jump into the drug of the week. But, based on feedback from listeners and our own experience the past few weeks, we've decided to make a slight adjustment to this segment. For the next few weeks, we'll be featuring a drug of the month instead. This means we'll focus on various aspects of a single substance throughout the entire month. We hope that this new format will provide some consistency from episode to episode, but most importantly, we hope it will allow us to explore the featured drug in more depth. We hope you're as excited as we are to see how the segment works out. And please, give us your thoughts and feedback, whether you love it, hate it, or it's complicated. And now for the first segment of Drug of the Month, where we'll take a closer look at the science, history, uses, and recent trends in a different drug each month. This month, we'll focus on the preferred recreational substance of the rich and famous, a substance that has led to one of the harshest racial disparities in the drug war, a war marked by racial disparities, and a substance that is the second most widely used illicit drug in the U.S. and worldwide. For August, we'll be doing cocaine. So this week, we'll take a look at its botanical origins and how it's converted from a natural plant into its powder form, cocaine hydrochloride. So what exactly is cocaine? Cocaine, as we generally know it, is a powerful stimulant acting on the central nervous system that is most commonly consumed in the form of a fine, pearly white powder. It acts by blocking the reuptake of certain neurotransmitters such as dopamine, norepinephrine, and serotonin. Cocaine itself is an alkaloid naturally occurring in the coca plant, which is native to Western South America. The coca plant comes from the genus Erythroxylum, 
of which there is an estimated 200 species growing in the Western Hemisphere. Only 17 of those species can be utilized to produce cocaine. The other 183 species went on to accomplish nothing of significance. For thousands of years, many indigenous peoples in the Andes have chewed coca leaves to combat altitude sickness and produce a mild stimulating effect, and continue to do so to this day. Extraction of cocaine from coca leaves requires several stages. First, converting coca leaves into coca paste, then the coca paste into cocaine base, and then the base into cocaine hydrochloride, its powdery form. The conversion of coca leaves into coca paste, base, and hydrochloride primarily occurs in Bolivia, Colombia, and Peru. First, the conversion of coca leaf into coca paste is accomplished in a coca paste pit, or pozo. A typical coca paste pit is a very crude structure located near the harvesting site and consists of only rudimentary equipment. Some paste pits have been in peasants' houses. The paste pit is usually a hole in the ground lined with thick heavy plastic or even a 55 gallon drum with the top cut off. Paste pits are often located near streams so that the processors have a constant supply of fresh water, which is used in the first stage of processing. The process of converting leaves to paste usually takes a few days. The coca leaves are first put into the pit and mixed with an alkaline material such as sodium carbonate, which enables the cocaine alkaloid to be extracted into a solvent such as kerosene. Then the solvent mixture is physically stomped on by human beings for several hours or several days to stir it all up. Depending on the size of the pit and the amount of leaf, the whole process will require the energy of two to five workers. Working the cocaine leaves for only a few hours renders less paste than if worked for several days. However, it's apparently sometimes more desirable to quickly move the paste out and onto the next phase than it is to get the maximum yield of paste per kilo of coca leaf. Tis the nature of illicit drug manufacturing. Uh, the cocaine alkaloids and kerosene will naturally separate from the rest of the coca leaf mush. The next step is a simple acid-base extraction which causes a precipitate to form. A precipitate just means the tiny floating chunks of solid that are formed during a chemical reaction, like little snowflakes. The acid and the water are drained off and the precipitate is filtered and then dried to produce a chunky off-white to light brown putty-like substance. This is coca paste. The coca paste is often then shipped to a cocaine base lab at a separate location further away from the cultivation site, where it will be broken down again with acid and purified with potassium permanganate, which will help extract other undesired alkaloids and materials. The solution is then filtered and then new pre precipitate is discarded. Finally, ammonia water is added to the filtered solution and another precipitate is formed. The liquid is then drained from the solution and the remaining precipitate is usually dried with heating lamps and the resulting powder is cocaine base. Finally, the base is shipped to a third processing location for the final stage of production. This final stage of transforming the cocaine base into cocaine hydrochloride, its consumable form, requires much more skill, equipment, and expensive chemicals than the previous phases and is usually much more dangerous. Acetone or ether is added to dissolve the cocaine base, and the, and the solution is filtered to remove any undesirable material. Diluted hydrochloric acid is added to the solution, and this final resulting precipitate is cocaine hydrochloride, the powder that is sold on the criminal market. The cocaine hydrochloride is dried under heat lamps or in microwave ovens until it is ready to be shipped. These labs will often have direct access to their own airstrip. 
Further processing, usually once the shipment has arrived at, the, at its destination country, involving bacon, baking soda and water, will turn the powder cocaine into, quote, crack cocaine, a smokable form of coke that looks like small hard rocks. As I've alluded to already, cocaine is a very versatile drug and is consumed in many forms. The coca leaf can be chewed or made into tea. Powder cocaine can be insufflated, which is a fancy term for snorted, or it can be mixed with water and injected. And crack cocaine, obviously, can be smoked. Street market cocaine is rarely pure and rather is frequently adulterated or cut with various powdery fillers to increase its weight. The substances most commonly used in this process are baking soda, sugars, or local anesthetics, which mimic or add to cocaine's numbing effect on mucous membranes. The coca plant and cocaine have had a long, fascinating cultural history with humankind. From its use as a natural herbal medicine in the Andes, to its more recent medicinal use in such well-known products as Coca-Cola, then to its rise as a popular party drug for the upper class, to the crack baby pseudo-epidemic of the 1980s. There is still plenty to learn about the science, history, and uses of cocaine, so we hope you'll stick around to find out more. This has been Rochelle Young with the Drug of the Month, exploring the origins and composition of, the, of our Drug of the Month, cocaine. Tune in next week for a look into the physical effects of cocaine and how it interacts with the human body. for our roundtable discussion. This week's topic is the opiate overdose crisis that is reportedly sweeping the nation. Joining us today as our guest expert is Lisa Rayville, Executive Director of the Harm Reduction Action Center in Denver. Welcome to the show, Lisa. Thanks for having me. So just to start off, Lisa, can you tell us a bit about um, the Harm Reduction Action Center, which I think you guys abbreviate to HRAC? Yes. So I'm the executive director of the Harm Reduction Action Center. We're a public health agency here in Denver, Colorado that works specifically with people who inject drugs. Uh, we do a lot of uh, direct service such as syringe access and um, health education classes, on-demand testing, and making sure that people have appropriate uh, factual and correct health information. We also pass uh, statewide legislations. We believe that the street should influence the policies at the state capitol. So we've passed six in the past six years. We've also passed three policy changes within Denver City Council. We are also currently located right across the street from the Colorado State Capitol. So yeah, you are pretty heavily involved in the lobbying side of things and not just the uh, the direct service, which is fantastic. Yes. Yeah, we, we think that legislators want to do the right thing. Sometimes they just don't know what that is, so it's up to us to tell mm -hmm. them so. As service providers and working with the community, a lot of the pol drug policies, as you know, are very archaic. And so we've mm -hmm. had to chip away at that to better serve our community and keep people free from HIV and hepatitis C to live a healthier and safer lifestyle. Yeah, that's great. And so... 
yeah, this episode, we wanted to talk about the, the opiate overdose crisis, but as Rochelle kind of mentioned before, the uh, reportedly sweep in the nation, I wanted to get some of your original thoughts just in terms of, are we actually in the middle of an overdose crisis? Is it actually something that's uh, sweeping the nation or is it more of a, uh, is it a modern day drug scare? What, what, what's your take on uh, the actual situation today compared to how it was a few years ago? So I can tell you we're in the midst of an overdose epidemic. It's the epic proportions um, and we can stop it. We just need to have like really good conversations about it. So I just am really excited today that we're able to start talking about it. In the last 13 years in Colorado, Colorado overdoses have tripled. Uh, nationally, wow. uh, car accidents, uh, overdoses leading cause of accidental death over car accidents. And according to the CDC and other folks, over 100 people die per day of overdoses. Oh, wow. As a service provider who has access to health education and naloxone, which we'll talk about in a little bit, I'm sure, I lost eight of my core clients last year to overdose. Wow. There's a fatal overdose in Denver County every 36 hours. So we are really, really having a lot of issues. What's great is with our overdose um, education and things like that, we're able to talk to folks about uh, overdose and why people end up overdosing because of, um, you know, there's no better business bureau for dealers. So heroin purity on Denver Street and the streets of Denver is anywhere between two and 57% at all times. But primarily the reasons that people overdose are because of mixing. So, you know, it sounds like a good idea when you're drinking everything, right? <laughs> so that's where a lot of the pharmaceutical overdoses are happening too with alcohol. Also tolerance. So if you've had any, any period of abstinence or clean time, so coming out of jail, uh, substance abuse treatment, or prison, uh, even a hospital stay, you're at a higher risk because you, you've had a, a, some period of abstinence. And so that's a higher risk of overdosing and passing away. Quality of drugs is unpredictable, as we know on this drug war. Uh, we don't have that better business bureau, so people don't really know what they're getting a lot of times. And using alone, most overdoses are witnessed. Only 1% is the needle in the arm. And and so a lot of times, too, is that's where we end up losing people is when they are using alone. So I am not one for like the, the reefer madness or the scare tactics, but as a service provider in the Denver community, we are seeing overdose in epic proportion. And what do you think are the key drivers between this recent drastic increase? I think you said the number of opiate overdoses has incre has tripled in Denver in the past year and that that's you know similar to the national trend what has what has been the cause of this increased use and overdose of opiates I think a lot of it has to do with um, pharmaceuticals and primarily what we're seeing for our folks is people are starting on pharmaceuticals um, oxys are running 50 cents a milligram on the streets of Denver so 180 milligram pill is forty dollars um, so the shift is happening too with a lot of these prescription drug monitoring programs so they're clamping down on a lot of the pharmaceuticals that are going out but that doesn't mean people don't have legitimate pain or are addicted and so they're shifting to heroin and then heroin is a little more difficult to, for purity um, standards because you never really know what it's cut with because by the time it gets down to the streets it's been cut multiple times and so it sounds like the main the main cause of these opiate overdoses and the, the crisis generally is more people who have been using pharmaceuticals medicinally rather than experimenting with quote-unquote street drugs. Is, would that be accurate? 
Oftentimes, people are starting with that. Um, I went to college, and I know it was very popular in college to do pharmaceuticals on the weekends and things like that. Um, we do see a large number of youth um, and younger folks, you know, starting with the medicine cabinet and then shifting over. So that's been a particularly uh, big problem uh, just locally for folks. Yeah, the prescription drug monitoring program is, is not helpful, I believe, um, and so a lot more people end up kind of shifting over um, and begin injecting. In, in Denver, we have black tar heroin, so it's difficult to smoke and snort. So if you're going to do heroin, you are going to be injecting it. Um, it's different around the country. Interesting. And yeah, so one of the things that we always struggle with, trying to approach this from a, re a drug policy reformer angle, but also recognizing that this actually is a really huge problem that's threatening people's lives. But how, how do we navigate this topic without giving into the prohibitionist framing of, of the entire thing of, uh, of drugs being so deadly and that uh, all the solutions that they're proposing? Well, I think one of the biggest problems that uh, has really led to overdoses in general, too, is, is the stigma and shame. If stigma mm -hmm. and shame worked addiction, we wouldn't have this problem, right? Stigma and shame drives use underground. It makes it more dangerous for people to share and reuse syringes, getting HIV, hepatitis C, and dying of overdose. Mm -hmm. um, so I think a lot, I think we need to talk about it. We need to talk about overdoses. We need to talk about what's going on. We need to normalize the issue. This is another issue that we're facing. And so, and that's where I, I particularly have issues a lot of times where, you know, they'll do national and local stories about the heroin epidemic and heroin and overdose, but then they won't talk about naloxone or people that are actually trying to make sure that people don't overdose and having those realistic conversations. We've already tried not doing anything and we've lost too mm -hmm. many people. I think we need to have the conversation of trying to do something so we can save everybody. Or if you know, they don't need people don't need to die to overdose. Right. I think this is a very important point that you've alluded to and that has been brought up in other discussions I've had around um, harm reduction, but it's really about humanizing the users too often. You know, people aren't thinking about solutions for keeping, you know, intravenous drug users alive or healthy because they just see them as almost subhuman, like as if they are their addiction rather than mm -hmm. a, a life worth saving. And mm -hmm. one thing that I really appreciate about, you know, the, the, the talks I've heard from you, Lisa, is that you really put a human aspect to this issue. It's not just a crisis. It's not just someone who has an addiction. It's a fellow human being who we want to help with their struggles. Mm -hmm. Thank you. And I feel like, too, our community is really good in talking about prevention efforts and substance abuse treatment efforts and the criminalization of drug users. We need to simply have the conversation about the life in the middle. You know, we believe that if people want to use drugs, they shouldn't have to live with a chronic disease such as HIV or hepatitis C, whether they want to live a life of recovery or not. You know, and people don't want to die, they just want to get high. And so really kind of talking about that with other people. And we end up getting more people to the movement. Unfortunately, a lot more people that come to the movement are mothers whose adult children passed away that they didn't even know were using. You know, the moms have been nationally, have been really coming out in force lately uh, and being able to talk about access to naloxone and things they didn't know about. And they want to tell other moms and family members. And, you mm -hmm. know, I mean, opiate overdoses are almost 100% preventable. Uh, not only with you know being able to to figure out why it's happening, but also with access to naloxone. Yeah, it is always an incredibly sad thing when that is someone's background and why they get involved in the movement, whether it's from an opiate overdose or uh, the mother who's leading the and then the Rayvac campaign, whose daughter died of an uh, of using MDMA. But 
It is also interesting to see, I, I've been seeing a lot of the time that it's a bit of a trend that uh, have, uh, of having very honest obituaries, uh, of actually addressing that this is the this is why my, my child died. And uh, giving that as a little bit, just as almost a warning or, or a lesson to other people so that they can actually learn from the experience. But I actually think that's such a positive thing rather than just ignoring it or just uh, papering over that, oh, died of an accident or something like that that to, to show people of how much of a problem it really is yeah or unexpectedly right mm -hmm. we're like well yeah they were young that did seem unexpected and you're yeah. right putting a face on and we actually at our agency we have an overdose memorial wall mm -hmm. uh where pictures of folks that we've lost and our community members have lost due to overdose and that's been really helpful too to put that up so, you know because people can be remembered but we can mm -hmm. also talk to newer people you know when we have law enforcement inside or elected officials or things like that they can come up and they it's not just this huge you like you're talking about this like never nebulous person or nebulous thing. These are mm -hmm. people who had families loved, who, you know, who we love and we miss a lot. Um, so that's been nice to be able to put a face to to the to the epidemic. And so we so you've touched upon naloxone. That's something that you've said multiple times already. So why don't we transition to uh, what types of measures or policies um, lawmakers can adopt, including naloxone, to combat these overdoses? Thank you. I love naloxone, it is magical. Um, and so we've had access for the last three years. We've been able to train over 400 folks and we've had 208 lives saved with access to our wow, naloxone. Wow, congratulations, that's huge. That that's incredible. Very big deal, it's very big deal. A lot, mm -hmm. a lot of people are alive today because of it. So it's an opioid antagonist. It's been around for 40 years, primarily it was used for emergency personnel, so either in the emergency department or paramedics. It's not addictive. There's no potential for abuse. There's no side effects. So if you don't have opiates in your system and you get naloxone, nothing happens. It knocks the opiates off the receptor and holds for 20 to 60 minutes while you can rescue breathe for someone. Uh, so naloxone is magical. It's not a scheduled drug. However, it is prescription. So state by state laws have been changed so people can have more access. Like we were talking about earlier, we want to make sure that um, you know most overdoses are witnessed. So we want to make sure first and foremost, opiate users can have access to naloxone. Often times in other states we want to you need to make sure that you can get uh, legislation change for third parties mothers homeless service providers roommates me we can get a prescription in our name so Colorado passed Senate bill 14 in 2013 because that's kind of not the way that that prescriptions are usually written usually a prescription is written for a person who's going to use it on themselves we had to just change uh, Colorado state law a little so the they know that they're writing a prescription to you. However, I'm going to be using it on someone else. So that just mm -hmm. needed to be changed. So that was really great. Uh, we also need to make sure to have access to 911 Good Samaritan laws. Uh, we want mm -hmm. people to be able to call uh, 911 in the event of an emergency and not get charged for small amounts of drugs. Uh, we also want to make sure that people, we just this year passed uh, standing orders for access to naloxone. Our doc had to have prescribed to each individual person of these over 400 folks um, after coming in and doing a short training. But I had of the over 400 folks that were trained, I've had over 2,600 requests for it. So we went ahead wow. and we're really excited. The Colorado State Legislature, all 100 state legislators voted in support of standing orders for access to naloxone. And when's the last time they agreed on anything, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's so, incredible. Um, I know, we were so excited. So this allows harm reduction organizations and pharmacists to work under a standing order, so a physician standing order, to push out more naloxone. So my doc does not have to be on site 
for us to go ahead and be able to train folks to get more naloxone out. So I actually have one of my uh, badass volunteers who's also a participant. He's doing the one-on-one standing orders training Monday, Wednesday, Friday at our agency. And he's doing a really great job of being able to push more out. We also were able to get pharmacists uh, to be able, they'll be able to do it um, under a standing order. Uh, And we were a little concerned, like, oh my gosh, what, you know, they're gonna have to find doctors. But then Dr. Larry Walk, who's the chief medical officer of the state health department, the Colorado Department of Public Health and Environment, was basically told everybody that if you don't have a doc, he'll be your doc. So now people mm-hmm. are able to work on his standing orders, which is just really exciting too. So that's just a few ways uh, legislatively that people can expand access to naloxone. And naloxone is warm and fuzzy. If you don't want it, you don't have to have it. If you want it, you should be able to get it. And so mm-hmm. for legislators and policymakers, it's really a really exciting time to be able to push forward for access to naloxone. That's really interesting. And and I just want to touch a little bit back on that thing about the standing orders you were saying. So essentially it is that the one of the top doctors in the state is essentially, do people actually have to go see him personally or it's just that he's signed off as kind of a, a blanket standing prescription that anyone will be able to get it and he's essentially the signer for it? So he, thank you. So he's standing, he has a protocol. So mm-hmm. the uh, on the state health department's website, if you just Google CDPHE and naloxone, uh, he's got everything that you need. So a harm reduction organization or pharmacist can go on there, download everything, and then they request for him to be the, the standing order physician. Uh, he signs mm-hmm. off, faxes it over, or scans it probably. Mm-hmm. I'm showing my age, faxing. Mm-hmm. Uh, <laughs> and, it, and then uh, people are able to do it. So Gail's Pharmacy in Denver is the first pharmacy that's working under his standing orders uh, and other harm reduction organizations around the state. So him saying that really expanded access to every corner of our state because it was going to be difficult for everybody to kind of figure out what doctor was going to do it. And then what's so great, because there's always a doctor in charge of the state health department not only is he doing it under his license but he's Mm -hmm. making it in the job description so if he ever moves on that it's always going to happen um the chief medical officer will always do that and that's huge Mm -hmm. yeah that's Um, amazing i want to ask because a lot of states aren't as open-minded and understanding as colorado is as far as access to naloxone um and i think there's a lot of misperceptions or misconceptions about what naloxone does that that this will actually incentivize people you know whether they're whether they are already addicted to opiates or not it will give them a reason to use you know intravenous drugs without like quote unquote without fear because there's a way that to, to come back from it so can you just explain for our audience like what the effects of naloxone are i know that it's not i, I know that it's not a, an easy treatment to 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 endure almost um if you are on the brink of overdose and this is the last resort that's a really good, I'm really glad you brought that up too, because there's actually luckily been a study or two done about it, but they, they're shown that people are not using more drugs because they have access to naloxone. People who do opiates actually hate naloxone because it puts them in an immediate withdrawal. So mm-hmm. if you know anybody who uses opiates, they never want to be in withdrawal. So the the very fact that people have naloxone is people are not using more. Um, so it does knock the opiate off the receptor. And so people can go into do go into withdrawal, and it depends on how much you how much naloxone you give somebody is how much withdrawal they go into. So paramedics are supposed to titrate to breathing, although sometimes when they come up on the scene, they're not really sure. So they give a whole bunch of naloxone, which means people come immediate withdrawal and can p- potentially come up swinging. 
we as lay people get a kinder, gentler dose. And so people end up waking up, but it's like really that first big breath, which is really important uh, for people. So it's rescue breathing and access to naloxone um, is huge for people to be able to continue to breathe. It's always funny too, because people, um, I hear a lot of times too, like, oh, naloxone, is that, you know, is it gonna get them into recovery or is naloxone gonna do this or that? Naloxone's only thing is it knocks the opiates off the receptors so you can rescue breathe for somebody so they can stay alive. Naloxone is not made to do anything else but to keep somebody alive thank you thank you for that uh, that <laughs> clarification and so i know a lot a lot of the people that you train at atrac as well are also intravenous drug users themselves and i've heard you say before that this is the best way to get you know naloxone or other harm reduction measures to the people who need it most why do you think that's such an effective model i think there's a few issues. I think law enforcement and drug users have had issues for a lot of years, obviously. Mm -hmm. People don't feel very comfortable being able to call 911 immediately. I also think there's a lot there's a lot of trauma in the injecting and drug using community in general for people that they've lost. Um, when people don't have access to naloxone, what they've typically done and continue to do sometimes without access is beat them up, put them in the shower, put ice up their butt, uh, inject them with salt water, inject them with cocaine. You know, those are things over the years because they didn't have the one thing that we knew would save their life, which is access to naloxone. So I think we've done um, what I believe the education around naloxone has really done too, is we can, we can talk realistically about overdose and we can talk about something that works. And uh, naloxone works. It's been proven very effective. It's uh, it's very magical and so it's really important that when we know we know that most overdoses are witnessed we want to make sure that drug users first and foremost have access to it we also our second tier is those of opiate users mothers homeless service providers me and what's nationally been happening is this third tier of law enforcement I think it's been particularly powerful that law enforcement is carrying it. I think, you know, it's happening in North Carolina and Georgia and New Mexico and, oh my gosh, like uh, all over the place, New York. We actually, Denver Police Department and Boulder Police Department are now carrying it in Colorado. Uh, they, they are often, law enforcement is often the first ones on the scene. They went into this job to serve. So I think that's really been helping repair relationships between law enforcement and drug users is with this access to naloxone. I think it's becoming a more palatable issue because law enforcement is starting to carry it and finding it valuable. I think mm -hmm. first and foremost, the, we always need to make sure that drug users have it. Yeah, absolutely. Just in my own experience, seeing in, in Massachusetts, a lot of the police departments here are becoming really good about carrying uh, naloxone all the time. And just having that be such a widely known thing, I feel like is actually starting to uh, repair the relationships a bit. So I feel like that is a really positive uh, development there. Definitely. And, and sort of pivot a little bit, actually, uh, since you are based in Colorado, and I mean, this is something that, you know, of course, comes up in any uh, drug policy podcast with uh, Colorado. But uh, I was wondering how legal marijuana, if at all, has impacted opiate use there. And so I, I've seen a couple of studies talking about um, that medical marijuana has actually helped decrease opiate overdose rates in, in uh, states where it's been legalized, with the, the, the reasoning being that people are using it as an alternative to prescription pain. Painkillers, uh, since it is uh, pretty well prescribed for pain management. 
Is that something in your time working at A-Track? Was that uh, something that you, you're seeing at all? Or do you think marijuana is more of a, uh, like a compliment or a, a substitute to opiates in, in, in your experience? That's a good question. You know, marijuana legalization hasn't really done much for in my work. Mm-hmm. Uh, most people, I know a lot of people who uh, my clients won't smoke pot because it makes them paranoid. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so uh, we, so there really hasn't, we haven't had much crossover. Brian Vicente, who, who Michelle knows, uh, is actually a board member. So that's, that's about as okay. much as we do with the uh, marijuana folks. Um, mm-hmm. I, you know, there there's rumors that there's an intake of like newly homeless folks that are coming to Colorado for marijuana. I don't really see that either. Um, I mm-hmm. think that's just a couple of narratives that the that the media wants to bring up. Um, mm-hmm. But I have those studies too, and that is really encouraging that people can use mar- medical marijuana or recreational marijuana instead of opioid use because pain is an issue. Chronic mm-hmm. pain in general is an issue. I think it's really difficult. Nobody, you know, it's hard to describe pain. I think once people think you're a, you're a seeker of drugs for pain, whether or not they believe it, like it's just a really murky waters and there's so many people in pain that if, if marijuana can help with that and to decrease opioid use, that would be great. Um, but we're, we're not really seeing much of a relationship at this point. Um, I suppose on a related note, um, you know, you guys, you do a lot of lobbying and advocacy work too. How does it affect your efforts, if at all, when the conversation around drug policy reform is often framed as marijuana versus other harder drugs? You know, in Colorado, we've been very successful at pursuing marijuana policy reform. Do you feel like sometimes other drugs or other drug policy reform gets thrown under the bus or gets lost in the conversation when so much focus is on marijuana? Thank you, that's a really great question. You know, marijuana does take up a lot of the time out here. (laughs) So I am always trying to chip away and let uh, others know about all of the great harm reduction work that we've been able to do. It can be hard. Uh, Right now, marijuana sexy, for a lot of people, um, the harm reduction will one day have our sexy day in the sun. So it, it can be tricky because a lot of t- you know, the gateway thing, pot is not the gateway drug to injection drug use. So sometimes that's where the correlation can be. I obviously want some of the marijuana money, which I'm not getting. Uh, so. <laughs> But um, but it's been it's really been a nice dialogue to have. I think I think it's really opened up for people to talk about other drug issues. Mm-hmm. I um, you know my my parents are religious Republicans who live in Illinois, and I feel like we can have a a, a lot more um, of a conversation now that we don't need to t- we don't need to talk about marijuana. Like mm-hmm. marijuana's fine. We got all sewn up in Colorado. We're mm-hmm. pushing forward things. Um, I think you know sometimes I feel like folks in the marijuana industry, and not the not not the Masons or the Bryans because they've always been very supportive, but folks on the ground really want to keep an arm's length from us. Mm-hmm. They want to be seen, you know, as more legitimate or you know not not get the waters murky with with harder drugs, mm-hmm. quote unquote. Um, mm-hmm. So that can be a little difficult sometimes for us because it's like we're all in this together. Let's do this, you know, and mm-hmm. we're um, all trying to accomplish the same goals. Yeah, so it can feel like you can feel a little siloed. And harm reduction in general, especially when you're talking about with heroin and meth and cocaine, can be very siloing in the community because, like, recently I had one of the dispensaries say, oh, so you're bringing drug users to the community. And I was like, well, actually, aren't you too? <laughs> <laughs> like, don't, don't be all judgy about it, you know? Yeah, wow. Yeah. 
for a variety of reasons. It doesn't really matter what they're using or why they're using it. We're in this together. So, so that can be a little hard. But, but what I, what I really get um, the luxury of, especially with policy, is a lot of the work that we do for people who inject is very public health related. You know, HIV, viral hepatitis, overdoses are a public health issue too. So they, so they don't get mired down in like, do you want to decriminalize or, you know, are you trying to legalize? I'm just trying to keep people safe from mm -hmm. HIV, hepatitis C, and overdoses. Um, so I'm kind of all full up over here. So, so I get the luxury of being able to talk about public health when, when that's a little more palatable for people, especially law enforcement too, because we have a great relationship because we're keeping them safe from being pricked by a needle. Mm -hmm. um, and then now with their access to naloxone, I mean, it's really it's become a better partnership. Um, in general. So it can get a little tricky. I am obviously a big fan of the marijuana movement and the folks working in it, but, but it can be difficult too when, when, the, when they're in the limelight a lot of times and we're, try, we're struggling to talk about that we've saved 208 lives with naloxone, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and thank you for sharing that story about the dispensary owner too, because th that sort of thing is always so shocking to me and of, of how much of that we're starting to see of working in the marijuana industry now that there there's a substantial number of people in it that are coming from the drug policy reform movement. So they really understand how these issues are connected, but other people that are just, you know, in some other kind of business and then get involved in marijuana because it's, you know, the green rush and everything just don't understand that they're connected. And I, I really hope that the marijuana industry supports this larger reform rather than just throwing it under the bus of oh our drugs legal now we don't have to worry about it and you guys are now the drug users that we have to condemn in congress and everything right. and thank that's, you that's and that's very much what we're trying to do with our podcast too here um with expanding the conversation to other types of drug policy reform and not just focusing on marijuana even though that is the sexy topic right now right. So. <laughs> Yeah, no, I really appreciate that, too, because that can be tricky. And especially when I do things like this in other states, people want to talk about marijuana. And I'm like, no, it's not me. Yeah. And so this is actually we're, we're coming up on the uh, the end of our timeline, unfortunately. But what we another thing with this podcast, we do like it to be very educational. So thank you so much for coming on and, and teaching everyone about harm reduction and naloxone. Uh, but we also like it to be very action focused as well, because it's not really worth learning about things if you're not going to go and actually do something with it. So we always ask, ask each of our guests to uh, just give a call to action to uh, to our listeners. And so something that they can do to uh, to help out. And so if, if you could have our listeners go and do something right now, what, what would that be? Thank you for the opportunity because we are the Harm Reduction Action Center. And so it's really important that I really want people today to talk to three people within their social circle about overdose. I think that's something that you can talk to with people today. You can dispel myths, squash rumors, and really have a good conversation. You wouldn't believe how many people have been impacted by overdose who have not been able able to talk about it due to uh, stigma and shame in our community. I also would like to encourage folks to talk to their doctor, talk to someone that's a prescriber in their community, whether or not you have access to uh, naloxone laws, you need to be talking to prescribers. Prescribers are the only ones that can go ahead and prescribe naloxone in communities that don't have very good uh, naloxone laws. So those are two things that people can do today. Put something on social media, bring up the conversation. We need to talk about it. Well, thank you so much, Lisa, for joining us today. Again, this was Lisa Rayville, Executive Director of the Harm Reduction Action Center in Denver. And we'll see you next time on This Week in Drugs.
Thanks for listening to the fifth episode of This Week in Drugs, hosted by Rochelle Young and me, Sam Tracy. The show is produced by Tyler Williams, and we'd like to thank Lisa Ravel once again for joining us for the discussion. If you have any comments, questions, or suggestions for the show, please send us a message on Facebook or Twitter, or you can email us at thisweekindrugs at gmail.com. You can also check out our website, thisweekindrugs.org, for more info about the show and who's behind it, links to our guests and their organizations, and more. We hope you tune in next week, and always remember, stay sensible. Thank you.